Defense contractors are scratching their collective heads after a Procurement Reform Commission released some early findings. The Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution, or PPBE, Commission seemed to sidestep some important questions, according to my next guest. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, and he joins me now. And I think, David, a lot of people are saying the commission seems to simply have kind of made some obvious recommendations, but really the PPBE itself seems to remain fully intact. Tom, it's nearly 200 pages in its interim report, and of course the final report is due next March. The commission had a little delay getting started. It's a congressionally mandated commission, and so Congress is at least in part the audience for this commission's report. And in the interim report, they have a a number of recommendations, but many of the areas that they focus on, they don't actually make a recommendation. What they state is they are considering recommendations in this area. And the, the ones that matter the most to contractors are the ones that we focus on. Right. And a lot of it had to do with, my reading of it, is that they just need to be able to have more reprogramming of budget authority and flexibility. This is a real key. One of the things that the commission notes is how long it takes to put the budget together, get it submitted and and then approved by Congress, and then executed. So your years, two years, three years, four years between the time you have the idea and the time you actually spend the money. Not surprisingly, things change during those two to four years. And so there's a need to ask Congress, or there's a need for the department at least, to change how it plans to spend the money. What Congress has done is they've imposed relatively low thresholds, pretty small amounts of dollars in the grand scheme of an $860 billion budget, to allow the department to have that flexibility. And they don't always approve it. And so a lot of times that flexibility isn't in there. This is critical to companies who are living in the middle of this disconnect between what you thought three or four years ago you'd be doing and what you actually have to do now. On the other hand, if you have wholesale reprogramming since the planning and budgeting part was all instituted, then in that sense, PPBE doesn't have that much relevance anymore. Well, that could be true, although I think that the tracking system still allows you to get there. The E part, which is a relatively recent introduction, you know, it used to be the PPBS, the Planning, Programming, Budgeting System. The E was added only only a, a 15 years or so ago, and it's always been joked that it's the silent E. Nobody really pays that much attention to execution once it's done. Um, I don't know if the commission makes a comment on that. I don't recall that they do. But I think that, that in any budget, the the execution part is really the part that matters the most. What do you get for the dollars that you spend? So I'd really like to see, and I think uh, our PSC members would like to see a greater focus on that. I note that, you know, other agencies that have much smaller budgets than DOD, the Department of Homeland Security, for example, has a higher reprogramming threshold than DOD does. I don't know whether that indicates that their committees have greater confidence in DHS's ability to execute its programs than the relevant committees do for DOD. I would submit that if that confidence is greater, I'd love to see the basis of it and and see it applied to DOD as well. Yeah, well, that's a good observation, although it could be simply a matter of age. You know, PPBS or PPBE, whatever it is, dates back to the 60s, and DHS didn't get established until, you know, this century. So maybe just the numbers are all bigger, you know, for anything happening in this century versus mid-last century. And you know, Tom, that comment about how long the PPB system has been in place, right? I mean, it was instituted at the beginning of the Kennedy administration by Robert McNamara. 
And it does have one really powerful attribute that I think sets it apart from much of the rest of the federal government. And that is, it is a fiscally disciplined system that looks out beyond the current year, builds into a, a five-year program, and forces DOD to think more clearly about how it's going to spend the money today to support the needs years from now. That's a real strength of the system, and I think that needs to be retained. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, and getting back to practical matters in this report, in this latest interim report, there is also a punt, as you put it, of extending the time before funds expire. And if something was worthy of funding, but the funding expires because Congress can't get its act together, and therefore, you know, it's a new fiscal year or something, that's a big issue for you. It's a huge issue, and it's an issue not only for, for companies, but it's an issue for the department itself. You know, the Defense Department, in fact, all appropriations have a period of availability, right, amount of time that before the funds expire. It could be one year, it could be two years, three or four or five or longer. Some agencies even have funds that have no expiration date. It's no year money. But the biggest problem in DOD is the one-year money, the O&M money, the operation and maintenance money to go for current operations. Well, if Congress doesn't actually end up appropriating the funds, and then OMB takes another month after appropriation before they release the funds until March or April, you've got one-year money that's really three-month money or four-month money. It's ludicrous to have to cram that kind of expenditure into that period of time, even if you've been spending some of it up to that point. That really needs to be tackled by the commission and the Congress to give one-year money a full year to be obligated and expended. This is the kind of thing that would make planning and programming and budgeting and execution much more practical. And notwithstanding that a lot of the commission's recommendations are or their final recommendations will be directed toward Congress, the DOD, almost the same day that the interim report came out, said, yeah, we're going to do all of this. That struck you as a little odd. It's unusual to see the department endorse a commission's recommendations on the day it's released without you know, further study or review, et cetera, particularly since many of the recommendations are interim recommendations and could be changed in the final report. But it is noteworthy as an endorsement that the department put out a press release, uh, an odd turn of phrase. It said attributable to the deputy secretary of defense rather than actually quoting the deputy secretary of defense as directing DOD to implement those recommendations over which it already has existing authority. Not clear which those are and uh, what that implementation plan looks like. We'll be looking at that carefully over the coming days. And I want to switch gears completely here with you and ask about some merger guidelines of defense contractors that are coming out from the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department. And we know this Federal Trade Commission never saw a merger it liked, even if Pa's Bakery buys Mom's Bakery down the block, they'd probably step in and try to stop that one, even though there's 20 other bakeries in town. There's still time to comment on this, and this could have a big impact on a dynamic activity, which is M&A in the defense space. It is a big activity. It has been for years in the defense space, uh, you know, well-documented. You know, the Last Supper from 1993, look to your left and look to your right. One of you three will not be in business five years from now because there's not enough business to sustain enough companies so you consolidate. There's a lot of other reasons for doing that. So this is the Federal Trade Commission and, and the Justice Department combined to put out the guidelines that they will follow as they examine mergers and acquisitions and decide whether to file an antitrust lawsuit. One of the interesting things, Tom, you and I have talked about this before, is that the administration puts out guidelines that address the broader commercial economy, but they have impact and implications for federal contracting, which is 
both a subset of and different than the broader commercial economy, different for all the rules that contracts put into place. There's no attention paid on the specific needs for mergers and acquisition review in the government contracting space. Why is this important? The basis of these guidelines is a redefinition of competition, which antitrust focuses on maintaining competition. The problem inside the government contracting world is the lack of competition is not because of the companies. It's because you only have one buyer, which is the federal government, right? And so to put the commercial competition requirements on a monopsonistic situation where only the DOD is buying or only the other agencies are buying is really not something that these guidelines address. That's something that PSC on behalf of our members will be addressing fully if we submit our comments in September. I guess maybe they are what I think might be in their minds is a bigger issue that has been already reaching the mainstream press, the idea that the defense industrial base is not resilient and really not up to capacity that's needed to supply in real wartime. As we've seen, I think one of the newspapers had a story about 155 millimeter howitzer shells. Well, you don't see that in daily papers very often, something so arcane. But that seems to be the bellwether commodity that is showing the strain on the dib. You're absolutely right. And actually, this ties back a little bit to some of the things that the PPP Commission talked about. You know, the impact of, of the uncertainty in the terms of the congressional budgeting and appropriations process, the long CRs that you have come into place, the question of whether you're even going to have a government shutdown, make it very difficult for a company to kind of project and invest for the long term. And you begin to see the results of that when you get something like the war in Ukraine that puts long-term demands on short-term supply. None of that is addressed either by the commission itself, although it hints a lot at the CR problems, but they're mostly on the budgeting side of it, not the producing results side. Now you see it in these guidelines as well. And of course, we're coming up against the deadline of the end of this fiscal year. And you tell me, are we going to have a shutdown? Are we going to have a continuing resolution? How long will it last? So how could you plan for long-term investment under those kinds circumstances. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. No answer on that last question, but thanks for joining me. We'll talk about it in September, I believe. Thank you, Tom. I think we will. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981 and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. 
I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that. But I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. 
I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me. Uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career. You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, Mm -hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when, when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. 
And so when I was born, I was very sick. A matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.